So uh, we're going to talk today about um, how groups affect our uh, social cognition. Uh, as I said, I got your papers marked, so I'll give those back to you uh, toward the break, as well as the um, quizzes from last time. People generally did uh, pretty well in the papers. I think most people were in the A and B uh, range, so well done. Um, any questions before we uh, get started today? Okay, so uh, we talked about um, individuals and how individuals respond um, to group situations. And what we're going to sort of talk a little bit about is how individuals think about groups and how, the, and how groups and our formation of groups affect our thinking about other people. Okay? And this is um, generally called social cognition, thinking about people. Right? And so uh, one of the main theories uh, that we look at in social cognition in terms of how people uh, respond to groups is called social identity theory. And the idea behind social identity theory is that people generally like to belong to groups. And they use various methods to kind of uh, indicate to other people what groups they're part of. And so we have this complicated way of not only looking out at other groups, but projecting ourselves out um, in terms of our group membership. So one way we can um, do social identity is uh, we can do it with clothes, for example. So uh, Frank here's got his uh, United States Postal Service shirt on. That's part of his group membership, right? It's one of his group memberships. Um, pretty, what's that? Yeah, plus it's work, yeah. Um, so uh, it's not that uncommon, you know, like um, uh, band t-shirts, right? That's a way to, um, to, to say something to the rest of the world about your group identity. And group identity is very important, just like personal identity is very important. When your personal identity is threatened, you'll do all kinds of things to try to get your personal identity back. Um, and the same thing with group identity. If somebody threatens your group identity, um, you'll try to figure out ways to, um, to make you, f to get yourself to be okay with your group identity again. If for some reason your group, somebody in your group does something that you don't like, right? And maybe it threatens your sense of the group as being good. Instead of saying, well, maybe the group isn't good, you'll say, well, maybe that person, um, you know, they're just a bad, a, bad, a bad apple in the barrel, right? And so you'll kind of explain away, th you'll explain away a lot of things to maintain this group identity. Um, and part of this gets at the idea of that we like to maintain this kind of collective self-esteem just like we like to maintain an individual self-esteem. And self-esteem is good. It helps us to feel good about ourselves, and that's, that's got some real benefits individually. And it also helps groups feel good about themselves. But just like it can have benefits, it can also have drawbacks. So um, you can feel good about your group identity even when your group is doing things that you think is wrong, right? 
Um, so this is when we start seeing, you know, we start getting into the dark side of social cognition. And ultimately, um, what we see in terms of uh, group identity and social identity and collective self-esteem is uh, something that's called the outgroup homogeneity effect. And essentially what the, out, the group homogeneity effect or outgroup homogeneity effect says is that um, we tend to see our in-group as more heterogeneous, more different, more diverse than out-groups. We tend to see out-groups as more homogeneous, right? So um, if I look, you know, if I'm a Democrat, let's say, and I look at Republicans, I see all Republicans as money-grubbing, um, you know, uh, profit-driven capitalist pigs, right? But Democrats, well, you know, some of them, you know, some of them are cons fiscal conservatives and some are fiscal, you know, liberals and some are social liberals and social conservatives. Not like those Republicans because they're all alike. Right? Questions on that? Other questions? So here's a good cartoon, a comic that I found that deals with uh, group homogeneity. It's called, it's from a comic called Tom the Dancing Bug. And it says, uh, on the distant planner of planet of Thamboria, people are always at war. You purple-skinned menace, you northwestern monster. Generations of bloodshed threaten the very species. It's regrettable but necessary that we have to launch these nuclear missiles. The planet's leaders and scientists conceived a bold plan. Wars are caused by an innate sense of belonging to one group and thus a fear and hatred of other groups. We'll create a new generation of identical clones without nation or race. We'll even give them numbers instead of names. When the old generation died off and was replaced by the clone generation, there was peace. After you, 214, 376, 717, 191. Thank you, 739, 947, uh, 347, 988. Until, hey, you took my parking spot. Oh, you even numbers are all the same. <laughs> Which led to regrettable but necessary wars, you even-numbered fanatic, you odd-numbered animal. So the next generation didn't even get numbers. After you, you, thank you, you, which worked for a while, but of course it didn't last long. You zygingst is on my lawn. Oh, I know your type. You were hatched from a blue clone pod, weren't you? <laughs> so it goes, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we seem to have this real intense need to group up with other people that are similar to us, our in-group members, right? And we also have this natural tendency to kind of think of out-group members in very simplistic kinds of ways. Um, and what we see in research most of the time is when we look at two groups and we compare the groups, we see more difference within groups than we do between groups. So for example, when we look at uh, studies in gender, oftentimes we'll see a lot more variance in the scores on a particular scale within gender than we will between it, right? Even though we categorize people by male and female, okay? So as you can imagine, this is all leading into a discussion of um, stereotyping and prejudice. 
Um, when we talk about stereotyping, uh, now, this is how I define stereotyping prejudice and discrimination. Some, some people don't make much of a differentiation between uh, stereotyping and prejudice, but I call stereotypes, I think of this as a cognitive component. The beliefs and attitudes um, that I hold toward a member of a group, right? If I know what your group membership is, I see you wearing a Metallica t-shirt, pink. I've got all kinds of attitudes that are going to be automatically activated, right? Oh, you head-banging, you know, drunkard, living out in the trailer. I don't know. I don't know what kind of attitudes. <laughs> it's not that bad. I used to live in a trailer, so no offense. Um, so yeah, so, uh, so I have all these beliefs and attitudes that I have toward the member of that group just because of their membership in the group. I don't have to know anything else about them. But because they're a member of that group, I make all kinds of assumptions, all kinds of attributions, right? <coughs> Prejudice, I think of as more of an affective, an emotional component to uh, stereotyping. So um, it's I think of it as really the feelings that you hold toward a particular group member. And those feelings are oftentimes generated based on the stereotypes you hold of that group. So if I know someone uh, is uh, engages in, uh, you know, this uh, water sports is a sexual activity. Um, it's when you involve urine in your sexual behavior. Um, you like being urinated on or urinating on other people while you're having sex or something. Yeah, it's not that uncommon. It's, well, it's pretty, it's not that common. <laughs> I'm not that, oh no, wait. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. Um, so, uh, so if I know someone's into water sports, I might have a disgust response. That's disgusting. You're disgusting. I feel disgust. I have this prejudice against people who are engaging in water sports. But, you know, I have this cognitive rational mind too. And the cognitive rational mind says, well, you know, all kind, takes all kinds in the world, right? But I still have that kind of generated response. It's very automatic and um, emotionally based. Um, and then uh, there's discrimination. And I like to think of discrimination as the behaviors that are the byproducts or the products of stereotyping and prejudice. So, uh, for example, in the United States, uh, you know, we have laws that prohibit discrimination based on certain personal characteristics. That's because people hold stereotypes and prejudices about members of those groups. We have a law, for example, prohibiting discrimination based on religion. That's because I have stereotypes and prejudices about uh, Mormons. I have stereotypes and prejudices about Catholics. I have stereotypes and prejudices about Jews. I have stereotypes and prejudices about Unitarians. No, wait. <laughs> Unitarians. <laughs> they can, you can't be you can't be prejudiced. Yeah, you can. They're all a bunch of you know they don't they don't believe in God or whatever. So I don't believe in them. Right. So. 
So we've got, the, we've got these laws in place because we know that there are these automatic responses that we have, and those responses are formed as a product of stereotyping and prejudice, which are oftentimes outside of our conscious control. Here's an example. I consider myself not to be a racist person. I, you know, I go out of my way to, in, in a lot of ways, um, accommodate or demonstrate um, that I'm not a racist person. But here I was, this was, oh, good golly, this was 15 years ago or more. Um, I get off this off-ramp on the highway, and I'm sitting at the light, and there's a car turning in front of me. It's a big silver, like, Mercedes 450 SL kind of, you know, big expensive Mercedes. And here's an um, African-American woman in the driver's seat and two uh, of her, apparently, of her kids in the back, right, African-American kids. And before I could even, like, it just really, it just went through my mind so quickly that I couldn't stop it was, what's she doing in that fancy car, right? So these are these kind, you know, and I grew up in a town that I didn't think was prejudiced or racist, right? I grew up in a town of, well, part of the problem was there weren't any African-Americans in my town. There weren't any blacks, right? So everything that I knew kind of came out of media impressions, right? But I had lived my whole life with this conscious notion that I wasn't racist, but then when the rubber hits the road, I get these automatic thoughts and cognitions, and it really startled me. You know, I kind of had to step back from myself for a second and go, what's going on here, right? Uh, questions on this stuff? Oh, yeah, but what's the difference between an attitude and a reaction? It's a thought I had. So does it, you know, does it represent this real deep under, underlying belief? Probably not, but it is, a, you know, it is a thought. It is a cognition that I had about this person based on her group membership, right? Um, you know, and surely I had had the opportunity up until then, because I was in my 30s by then. I had had an opportunity by then to see lots of, um, you know, black people who are, you know, upper middle class or, or upper class wealthy driving in cars that were expensive, right? I can't, I, I, I'm not going to justify it or rationalize it. I don't think I had any rational reason for thinking that. But no, I don't think so either. You know, I wasn't about to, you know, Holler at her and say, get the hell out of that car, right? Oh, incidentally, I was just reading uh, an article in, uh, in the Washington Post and the New York Times about um, uh, people who are campaigning for Obama. And um, they're, they're oftentimes for these very idealistic, young, you know, 20-year-old white college students who've, you know, grown up in suburban America and never realized how deeply rooted racism is in this country. And they go to work in these, you know, in these places where there's a lot of racist sentiment, you know, older people that grew up in the racist um, culture. And, you know, they'll go knocking door to door and they'll get, you know, hollered at and have, you know, epithets 
hollered at racist epithets hollered at them and you know it's very shocking to them you know it's like all of a sudden they go oh my god people in the United States have racism <gasps> you know it's like this big surprise you know um, unfortunately it's yeah yeah you know we grow up in these sort of sheltered place Portland Oregon you know right like a bastion of you know forward-thinking progressives but you know you go out in the rest of the country and the rest of the country doesn't think like we do folks so um, anyway yeah It's a way to exert authority and yeah. Sure. Um, my other comment or question is how do you how do you separate this group from just uh, differentiating things like people and describing them? Just having descriptions about different people and not necessarily building I'm not sure I understand your question, but um, uh, so if I say someone is black, has black skin, that's a description. But when I say someone is black and that activates in your mind, whether you're conscious of it or not, all kinds of attributions about that person, right? If I say black, I, you know, who knows what gets activated? Uh, lazy, hostile, aggressive, dangerous, athletic, you know, there's all these kinds of stereotypes that we get um, communicated to us in a variety of ways. And so um, it's, it's not so much, you know, a description, a description maybe gives you an image, a, um, attitude or a stereotype brings in attributions and all kinds of things about that group distinct from that one descriptive word, right? Yeah. That's, that's the difference, I think, if I understand you properly. Um, you know, one thing that I really appreciated about being in the South when I was in South Carolina was yeah, there was racism, but unlike Portland, Oregon, it was um, more overt. People didn't try to pretend they weren't racist and then have their behavior be something different, right? Um, and what I see in Portland as I look around is there's a lot of this sort of subtle racism that's very um, covert and not so much overt. Um, but it, it, takes the, it takes place in terms of where we live, um, you know, what kinds of uh, jobs we have, right? So there's a, I think it's, it's a subtle racism here. We're there, it's a little more, people are a little less afraid of sort of saying, yeah, I, you know, this is who I am, right? I'm a redneck, right, or whatever. You know, you saw the, uh, you know, I drive around, see the rebel flags flying. It's like, people are like, that's who I am, buddy. You know, it's like, okay, I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> I don't have to guess, you know, the neighbor across the street who looks very mild-mannered is, you know, putting up, you know, crosses in his lawn or whatever, yeah. Well, Portland has a huge history of racism. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, oh. like, definitely. You were, like, in, like, the 20s, you know, like, yeah. we support of the KKK. Mm. Yeah, we were, like, the last oh, yeah. Until the early 80s, there was a huge hammerhead skin base mm -hmm. here. 
That's right, this Northwest skinhead thing, right? Yeah, I didn't, that's, I forgot about that. Oh, wow. Yeah, huh. huh. Yeah, um, Gregory, Jim? Well, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this, but is the overt or the covert is one more dangerous than the other, like more difficult to get rid of? Like, um, will, will covert ones fade away more quickly? I don't know. I don't know. So the question... Yeah, so the question is, does covert um, stereotyping and prejudice, um, is it more resistant to change than overt stereotyping and prejudice? Well, this is getting into an area of attitude change, which is part of social psychology and social cognition. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that attitudes get changed. Basically, what has to happen is... Um, you have to have some kind of, you have to become aware that you have two inconsistent beliefs, two inconsistent thoughts. And what you will try to do is you will try to bring those thoughts into consistency. So if I believe that I'm very, you know, like I did when I pulled up in that, you know, when I stopped in front of that car, I believe that I'm very egalitarian and, um, you know, I'm not a racist, but then I have this thought, what's that woman doing in that car? Those are inconsistent. I've got to resolve that inconsistency somehow. It can either say, oh my God, yes, I am a racist and I'm a bad person, which most people don't want to do, right? Most want, people want to maintain a good belief about themselves. So they will instead somehow change this other cognition of what's that person, what's that person doing in that car? And they might say, oh, well, that person is obviously the servant driving the car, not the owner, right? <laughs> right? That's a way to keep your thoughts in consistency. Oh, I'm not, pre I'm not prejudiced against that person. It must just be the servant, right? Is that like cognitive it's cognitive dissonance. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's an attitude change. Um, it's hard to change those basic kinds of attitudes. Um, we like to maintain a thought that we're a good person. And when we realize that we're not, we don't, we don't like to do that, right? Uh, we won't change the behavior. We're more likely we'll um, do all kinds of other mental gymnastics to try to maintain the behavior and still think we're a good person. But um, yeah, a quick couple of quick questions and we got to move. Yeah. I, I can't remember the term. It was from last, or it was from last term, but it's uh, when you come, again, uh, you come across something that contradicts your prejudice, but you are able to use that to just reaffirm your prejudice. Like it's, it's something about your, your bias Um, so belief perseverance, you cling to beliefs um, even in the face of disconfirming evidence or uh, something that's similarly related which is uh, uh, the uh, uh, confirmation bias where you tend to only seek out sources of information that confirm your pre-existing beliefs and ignore sources of information that Conf that disconfirm them. So it sounds more like um, belief perseverance. Yeah. 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 I was just wondering, is it easier? I mean, just like you know, I think, you know, one of the things about that thing that change your attitude, you have to know about it. Yeah. Is it easier for like people that are, you know, have a big education to be able to do that, or are they too deep rooted in the thought? Like, would educated people 
Yeah, I don't think so, because a lot of the studies on this have been done with, you know, like college students. And not saying that college students are highly educated, especially first or second year college students, but no offense, but I'm talking about the other first and second year college students. Um, but yeah, um, generally, I don't, I don't think that there is much of a, of a relationship. Yeah. But certainly, one of the ways to overcome this process is to know about how these cognitive processes work so that when it happens to you, like it did with me, I can go, oh, you know, step back from it and go, oh, wow, this is a cognitive process in action. This is something, you know, that um, has to do with group membership and social identity, and maybe I have to re-examine my beliefs and, you know, my real um, reactions and where are they coming from and think about the media that I'm watching and how I'm being exposed to things and being more a critical thinker. You know, that's really the only way to overcome this stuff because um, it is so automatic. I'm a social psychologist, and I study this stuff, but it still happens to me, right? Yeah. Okay, so you're proposing that um, if you get involved with members of the group that you might have a prejudice toward, that that might change your uh, beliefs about the group. Um, this is um, generally known as uh, what's called the contact hypothesis. The idea that if you're, the more you're in contact with members of a group, the more you'll begin to see them less homogeneously and more heterogeneously. It works to a degree. Um, did anybody see um, American History X? Yeah, that's a great example of the contact hypothesis. You know, it worked out in that case. Um, but typically what will happen is you will begin to see exceptional members or aver even average members of that group as exceptions, right? And you'll go, well, that, you know, that, per that, that uh, pick your, you know, insert group here, um, that black person was really nice, but that's probably just an exception. And, but the more contact you have, generally, the better it is. But what we see in um, studies is that um, what's more important than contact alone is what you're doing when you have the contact. Um, did, your, did your book talk about the um, robber's cave experiment with the kids in the bus? Do you remember this? Okay, might be in the next second half of this chapter. Um, this is a study done by uh, Musafer Sharif in the 1930s. And essentially what he did was he um, set up a situation at a summer camp um, with, they created two groups of boys, you know, one was the eagles and the other was the hornets or something. And um, the, 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 what they wanted to do, these, these children didn't get along. And so what they did is they formed these two groups and uh, they set up a condition where they were going in a bus together and the bus broke down, right? And these two groups don't like each other. And in order for them to get the bus going, they had to work together. And they worked together on this, what's called a superordinate goal, some goal that is bigger than you, you know, bigger than your diff group differences, right? And when you work on this superordinate goal together, that's where we found reductions in uh, prejudice and hostility between the groups and things like that. Um, 
So, you know, uh, the example that I put on the, did I put that on the board in here? Um, September 11th, was that in here? And so that's an example of a superordinate goal, right? No longer were we, was I a Democrat and a Republican and a Nader group. It was all Americans working toward this goal of um, helping to stop terrorism, right? Or responding to terrorism or helping each other respond to it, right? And so when you create these superordinate goals, you get much better um, reductions in prejudice and stereotyping when you get people working together like that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, don't, I didn't think of it. Any other uh, questions about this? Prejudice, stereotyping? You know, uh, first of all, not all stereotypes are wrong, okay? We generally tend to think of stereotypes as wrong or um, somehow misguided ideas we have about groups. Um, but some stereotypes actually are correct. And one of the ideas in evolutionary psychology is that this stuff, sir, uh, probably in our, in our evolutionary past, served a very useful purpose, which was, I have to be cautious of strangers. Because, you know, in our evolutionary past, we lived in small groups. At first, we lived in um, uh, um, nomadic groups, right, that would move around a lot. And then eventually, we settled into small living groups that were geographically based. And if I see somebody coming toward me who looks a lot different from me, right, because the genetic similarity in those groups is going to lead to people looking more similar, that person may be a danger. You know, they may be trying to get something from me. They may try to take advantage of me. They may be bringing diseases, right, that, I, that my group may not have been exposed to. So one of the hypotheses that we can generate from evolutionary theory is that these behaviors may actually have served a very useful purpose at one time. In a contemporary context, they're not so useful because those differences that we see are not generally indicators of danger, right? We don't have to be as cautious of people who look different than we do. So, um, so I, I want to caution you that this stuff, even though it works badly now, it doesn't mean that it, 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 it may not have been a, a behavior that had some useful purpose in our evolutionary past. So um, what about aggression? Well. Um, for a long time, and starting really with Freud and the psychodynamic perspective, there was an idea that um, catharsis um, was a way to drain off um, aggressive impulses that we have. Remember that uh, Freud was all about the unconscious, unacceptable impulses that we have in the id. And Excuse me. One of those unacceptable unconscious impulses is the impulse for aggression. And so Freud says, uh, what we have to do is we have to somehow, you know, get rid of that. And one way to do that is that people can, um, you know, uh, observe aggressive acts or engage in aggressive acts. And the problem with this is that subsequent um, studies have shown the uh, catharsis hypothesis to really not hold much water. Uh, those of you who were in 201, you may have seen the um, Bobo the doll 
um, experiments. And so um, this, these are experiments that uh, uh, Albert Bandura ran and demonstrated the power of observational learning. So we set up uh, two groups of children, a control group and an experimental group. Experimental group watched an adult play um, violently with this Bobo doll, which is an inflatable doll that falls over and then it, it's like a weeble wobble, you know, it's, but it's big, you know, it's about this tall. And so they played very aggressively with it. The control group saw an adult playing with the doll, but the, adult, the adults were playing with it in a very non-aggressive way, right? And so uh, Bandura was interested in what would the effect of watching the aggression have on aggressive behaviors of the children once they got the opportunity to play with the toy. And it turned out that not only did they generally use more aggressive behaviors when they had watched an adult behaving aggressively, but they also found new ways to exhibit that aggressive behavior. So in the control group where they didn't see the adults um, being aggressive, there was like a gun in the room and the children never picked up the gun. Even though the adults in the experimental group had never uh, demonstrated using the gun aggressively toward the doll, the children picked up the gun and used it aggressively toward the doll. So there's all these kind of, not only the idea that they actually will engage in more aggression, but they'll actually find new ways to be aggressive, right? They're very, cre you know, children are creative. So they'll find new ways to hurt somebody if they watch somebody else hurting them. So, um, so the catharsis hypothesis was essentially uh, foiled at that point. Um, the, uh, a second idea about aggression was put forward as the what's called the frustration aggression hypothesis. And the frustration aggression hypothesis, the frustration aggression principle, um, was that aggression is a product of frustration. And frustration can build up in people in a variety of different ways. Uh, for example, you know, every time, you know, you've all experienced this, you know, you're um, I don't know, if you ever stand behind me in a line at the grocery store, you know, you'll see me, I'll, you know, get up there, I'll talk to the cashier, how are you doing today? I hope you're having a nice day. And meanwhile, people are back, come on, I want to get going, what's he doing? Yeah, and then I get out my change, and I always like to make exact change when I can, and so I'm sitting here and everybody's like behind me, right? You ever seen this commercial with the Visa cards, and everybody's zipping through the lines, every line, this guy drags out a checkbook, and it's like, the whole thing comes to a halt, right? So, you know, we get frustrated by things in our world and our aggression builds up. And um, uh, that aggression, when we act out that aggression, it really, as the frustration builds up, it really provides an outlet for that frustration. So it's less a product of really wanting to hurt somebody, but just of wanting to get that frustration out because we don't like feeling uncomfortable. It's the same thing with cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, when we realize we have two inconsistent beliefs, creates arousal. And we don't like to feel aroused, so we like to get rid of that arousal. And one way is through aggression, according to the frustration-aggression uh, principle. We do know that two, there are um, a couple of environmental factors that are um, very likely to lead to aggression. One is heat. Um, if I put people in a room and turn up the heat, I start to see more aggressive behaviors emerge. And also a second one, a reliable one, is crowding. The more crowded a room is, um, typically the more aggressive uh, the behavior that'll emerge in that room. So we're affected, 
our behavior is affected by our environment, our social environment and our physical environment. And that can sometimes, uh, unfortunately, lead to aggression. Okay. I don't like to end this lecture with uh, on a bummer, so let's talk about friendships. Here's basically what the data come down to when we look at all kinds of studies on friendships and romance. We like people who are more similar to us. People in our in-group, we generally like them more. We also like people who like us back, right? So the more someone else likes us, the more likely we are to like them. You know, this is not rocket science. What's that? It is kind of, um, yeah, uh, so I wouldn't call it self-serving. Uh, I would call it a, uh, what do you call it? It's in your textbook, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Not self-serving, not self-justifying. Self-fulfilling self prophecy, yeah, right. You know, the more we like somebody else, the more they like us, the more they like us, the more we like that, you know, so yeah. Um, and we also um, generally will become friends with or form romances with people who are near us. Um, and this is what's broadly known as the proximity effect. And basically, you can't get to like somebody if you don't see them or you don't know them, right? Now, this is getting a little bit different because now we've got the internet and you know these cameras and stuff. So um, it's, it, it'd be interesting to see how this data changes over time, um, whether people will uh, begin to, whether the proximity effect will begin to be less, or if we'll just have to change our ideas about the proximity effect, you know? Um, do you, is it because you see them rather than you don't see them, right? Uh, Christopher, do you have a question? What's that? Have contact with. Have, yeah, um, some sort of contact and the, the nature of the contact, the different variables involved. Yeah, Christopher? Does the proximity effect affect the first one? Like, you want people to be similar to you, but if you are more exposed to them, people who aren't, you might Good. start feeling an attraction for them? So these are all related. Um, First of all, um, we generally tend to live, you know, around people who are more similar. You know, we, uh, we, stratis we stratify. You know, our neighborhoods are stratified by economics, for example. So the people who live in your neighborhood are probably more likely to, you know, share your socioeconomic status, for example. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they're all going to be kind of tied in together. But the proximity effect really um, gets to uh, something that marketers use a lot, which is called the mere exposure effect. Basically, the more that we see something or we hear about it, the more we will tend to like it, um, regardless almost of the content of of the things of the things we see, as long as it's not presented to us in a very negative light. Um, all we have to do, for example, is see a picture of a product, right? And the more that I've seen that picture of the product, if I go to a grocery store, the more likely I am to buy that product out of the whole array of other products like it. 
we're pretty simple animals, really. We don't, um, what's that? That's right. Yeah. So just keep running it, running it, running it, you know, bombard. So, you know, we're in the political season now, right? And, you know, I can't, you know, it's not more than about maybe 10, 15 minutes between political ads right now, right? Um, you know, the iPod ads, you know, another great example of uh, mere exposure. The, the ads uh, rely on what's called the peripheral route of persuasion which means it doesn't tell you anything really substantive about the product. You see these iPod ads and they got the, you know, the person dancing around all crazy and, you know, like Elaine on Seinfeld. <laughs> My fiance thinks it's really funny when I dance. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so do we, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I get this person dancing around, I get the music and the, you know, the bright colors and stuff. There's nothing there about the iPod. It doesn't say, you know, that it, has six gigabytes of RAM or whatever. It doesn't say, you know, it's got, you know, headphones that work really well or, you know, it's got neat buttons and lights. It's just, it's all color and persuasion and mere exposure, right? The more you see it, the more you go, oh, iPod, iPod, iPod. Oh, yeah, I know. So I want to get a, one of these MP3 players. Oh, iPod, I know that, right? Yeah. Um, those of you who are pretty, good looking, uh, you've got something of an advantage in terms of social behaviors. Uh, first of all, physical attractiveness will uh, predict how frequently you go out on dates. Those people who go out on dates more are physically attracted, more physically attractive. It also predicts um, how popular you will feel. The more physically attractive you feel, the more popular you will feel you are. That doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily predict actual popularity, but rather feelings of popularity. And then, of course, um, first impressions. Um, when other people meet you, they are going to be more likely to think that you have desirable or positive personality traits because you're better looking. Um, yeah. Of course, I didn't. I haven't seen that study, but it makes sense. But hey, you know, um, my students do real well and think I'm a real good teacher, so I am in favor of that study. <laughs> I'm all on board with that one. Of course, um, culture is going to have an impact on our uh, perception of physical attractiveness, mm -hmm. right? So um, in this particular culture, for example, for women, we have this um, very thin um, uh, ideal of body, body shape and body type, um, which is really quite different in a lot of other cultures. In fact, um, uh, what, we, what we might consider beautiful in this culture, uh, in other cultures, would be considered unhealthy or maybe emaciated even. Um, and certainly not um, as fertile. 
right? So one of the cues for fertility in most cultures is um, large hips, right? Um, you've got some uh, fat on your body so that you can um, survive easily. You know, if there's any threat in terms of food availability or supply, you can get through that period. So um, the average body style in the United States, um, which is um, by by most media standards at least very not particularly attractive is actually a very attractive body style in most cultures so um but we do have one variable that will typically predict attractiveness and that is um uh, facial symmetry how symmetrical your face is how similar the right and left sides of your face are um and the more symmetric, we can create s symmetrical faces. Mm -hmm. And as long as there's nothing weird on the face, like a mole on one side, if we, if we then mirror that side to the other side, then the mole's on both sides and it gets weird. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah. But um, we, can, we can do that. We can also um, take those uh, uh, symmetrical faces and kind of use a computer modeling method to uh, make, to essentially layer them on top of each other so the differences disappear and they become this homogenous kind of face and the more um, typically the more symmetrical uh, the more likely it is uh, that it'll be considered attractive so we have ways to experimentally um, induce attractiveness so that we can study this uh, in a more scientific way than subjective attractiveness for example um, Romance, who do you fall in love with? Well, um, the more generally aroused you are when you're around somebody, the more likely you will to attribute that arousal to that person, especially when you first meet them. So this is, uh, this is an interesting study uh, done in British Columbia by a guy at the University of British Columbia before I got there. And uh, what he did is he went up, it's called the Capilano Bridge Study. He went up to the Capilano, this Capilano Bridge, which is a real rickety um, uh, suspension bridge above a real deep gorge. It's kind of scary to walk across it. You know, they charge you money and you walk across it. And uh, it's kind of scary. And what they did is on one side, the, I think it was the side after they had walked over the bridge and got to the other side, they had a research assistant there, attractive female research assistant, of course, who was uh, presumably surveying male, uh, uh, males who were crossing the bridge about their personality traits or something. So she had this survey, and she'd have them fill out the survey. And then she'd give them a slip of paper, or uh, like a card with their number on it, and said, you know, as part of um, psychology experiments, we always like to make sure you can contact us if you have any questions. So um, let me know if you have any questions. That was the experimental condition. The control condition was a bridge a little further up uh, stream from the Capilano Bridge, which is um, shorter and it's a real bridge. It's like, it's not rickety at all. It's like super solid and stable and the gorge isn't as deep there. And so, uh, so what they did is they ran this at both bridges and they waited essentially for um, a couple of weeks to see who would call. And uh, the men, bless you, the men who had crossed the scary bridge were more likely to call the research assistant, the attractive female research assistant, and were more likely, if they did call, to ask this research assistant on a date. 
And so, um, so that started this whole idea of if, if there's some kind of generalized arousal, do we attribute that arousal thinking we're attracted to this other person for some reason? And yeah, it turns out we do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a good idea to go to a scary movie when you go on a date. Yeah. Yeah, well, you feel, you know, maybe feel more attracted to each other. I don't know. Of course, maybe it's not a good idea. I don't know. Depends what kind of dates you go on. Um, so passionate um, versus companionate love, really two very different kinds of love. Passionate love being the very um, intense love experiences we have at the very, usually at the beginning of a relationship. And what will develop later in the relationship is something known as compa companionate love. Um, and so companionate love tends to be less intense, less of this sort of emotional upheaval, right? And more stable and long-term. And when we ask people who, um, uh, who are later on in their relationships and successful long-term relationships, um, what is important for the relationship? We get two things really. Equity, meaning that um, the individuals share in the relationship equally. That doesn't just mean they share work equally, but they also um, equally um, are equally self-disclosing in the relationship, right? So if I'm having trouble, I tell my partner. If my partner's having trouble, she tells me, and we both equally share, right? It's not sort of this one way, like, you know, she always tells me her problems, and I don't ever tell her mine or whatever, right? Um, and then... Um, uh, oh, and then I talked about self, yeah, that, I mixed them up. And then the self-disclosure is part of that too. So um, so there's, you know, a little bit of what we know about romance, about friendships, although um, the data is fairly difficult to gather, as you can imagine. You know, you can't, it's hard to assign people randomly to a particular relationship, right? They, we, we form these relationships organically, so... Um, so most of it's correlational studies. So, um, but that's that's something what what we can get from the research. Okay, it's about five after. Uh, that finishes up social psychology. We'll start on uh, stress. We'll start stressing. Um, why don't we um, just take ten minutes off and start at quarter after? That'll give us thirty-five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll get your papers back to you.